0: Hallelujah. Lord, we give you our hearts. Father, we give you our souls. Lord, we live for you alone. Father, we pray that that would be our heart this morning, Lord. We pray that that would be our attitudes, Father. We pray, Lord, that we would diligently seek after your kingdom, Father. That you would be first and foremost in our life, Lord. Because our lives are not ours, Father, but they are yours. We just pray, Father, that you would be glorified this morning as we open your word, Lord. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would stir inside of us, Lord, and lead us to truth. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning's message will be from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. The title of this morning's message is Obedience Through Faith. So in this morning's text, we will see Paul, or Saul as he was called prior to his conversion, come full circle from an avid persecutor of the church to an ambassador for Christ, proclaiming the word faithfully despite the consequences. We will see the transformative power of God and the Holy Spirit take hold of one of the most unlikely of candidates and make them into arguably one of the most powerful missionary influences of all time. We will also study what it looks like to truly crucify the flesh and to put to death our earthly desires for the sake of the kingdom. So just a little background information here for those of you who are not familiar with where we are in the text this morning, Saul has been wreaking havoc on the early church. He is in complete opposition to Christ and the church and the message that they have been preaching after Christ's ascension into heaven. He has made it his life's mission to persecute Christians and destroy the church. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. He was an enemy of Christ. He was a persecutor of Christians. His mission in life was to snuff out the movement of the early church. He was also highly respected amongst the Jews. Paul was a Pharisee, like his father, and his discipline and his zeal in the Jewish community were unmatched. But God, however, had a different plan for Paul. You see, God can take the most wicked, wretched, sinful soul of any man and transform it into the image of his son. That is what he does. He finds us in our depraved state and he rescues us from ourselves. So the aim of this morning's message is to try to understand this transformative power of the Holy Spirit and to count the cost of following Christ. You see, once we are born again, we are no longer a slave to sin, but we are a slave to Christ. Our life is not our own. And we must follow God's will for us wherever that leads to. And most of the time, the direction that that road will lead us down is the opposite direction that the world is telling us that we should go. It will run contrary to the desires of our flesh. So this morning, we'll study this transformative power of the Holy Spirit and what obedience to the Holy Spirit looks like using Paul and his testimony as our primary example. So there's a few main points here to take away from this morning's message, and they are as follows. Our depravity and our sin, and the divine intervention it takes to set us free from that. The consequences of our sin on this side of glory. The costs of following Christ and trusting in him. And finally, the blessings of obedience to Christ. So with that introduction, would you please stand with me if you are able, out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoner to to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and through his, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, "'Here I am, Lord,' he replied. "'Get up and go to the street called Straight,' the Lord said to him, "'to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, "'since he is praying there. "'In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in "'and placing his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. "'Lord,' Ananias answered, "'I have heard from many people about this man, "'how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem.' and he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regra- regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately he began to He began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in the text this morning, we begin with Saul on his way back from a recent trip to see the high priest. The text says here that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was on a mission. His hatred for the church was quite evident. And I'm sure at the time, in his own mind, he was doing the will of God. He was blinded by anger and by his flesh he was stuck in the ways as a Pharisee he was intent on the destruction of the church now notice here he is even doing everything according to the letter of the law he's not cutting any corners he goes to see the high priest and get the necessary paperwork that he needs the correct documents so that he can legally persecute the Christians at the church in Damascus. Now isn't this kind of how we all are before we're saved? We're content in our sin, a little bit pleased with ourselves, maybe even a little bit proud. I can remember before Christ transformed my heart, I didn't think that I was doing anything wrong. I considered myself to be a good person. I was happy with my life. I didn't think that I needed anything to change it. You see, brothers and sisters, before we are saved, when we are walking in the flesh, we are incapable of saving ourselves. We are incapable of even seeing that we need to be saved. We walk around content in our sin, slowly marching towards death and destruction. That is, until God intervenes in our lives and calls us to repentance. Now, for some of us, this may look a little more subtle, and some of us, it's a bit more dramatic. But we see here for Paul this morning in the text, it was very abrupt. So picture Paul traveling down the road to Damascus. He's on his mission, right? He's got his documents in hand. He's ready to present them to the synagogues giving him the legal authority to arrest anyone he finds there preaching Christ. When suddenly he is struck down, the Lord God Almighty stops him dead in his tracks and brings him to his knees. In verse 3 we read, As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now there's a couple important details to note here. So notice in the text, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord calls out his name twice. So what's the relevance here? Well, I did a little research, and there are about 15 times in all of Scripture where someone's name is stated in repetition like this. A few examples would be when Abraham stood on Mount Moriah, ready to sacrifice his son Isaac, God stopped him, calling, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Or when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he calls out to him, Moses, Moses, do not draw near this place, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Or when our Lord Jesus was on the cross right before his death, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Jesus himself warns us that when we stand in judgment, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, done mighty works in your name, and cast out demons in your name? So as we read this here this morning, this isn't just a typo. There's a reason that Jesus calls out his name twice. This is a moment of great significance. Also notice here that Jesus asks him, Why are you persecuting me? Jesus has already been crucified, raised, and ascended into heaven. What Jesus is saying here is that if you are persecuting my church, you are persecuting me. This is how close of a relationship that Christ has with his church, with his bride. Whether it was 2,000 years ago, today, or 2,000 years from now, when the church is persecuted, Jesus takes it personally. And finally, it's important to notice here that it is Jesus himself that appears to Paul. Now this is crucial here because for someone to qualify as an apostle, they needed to have been called directly by Christ. So it is critical here that it is Jesus himself that calls Paul on the road to Damascus as this validates his authority as an Apostle in the church. I also find it interesting here in the text this morning that Jesus strikes him down, blinds him, and then tells him to get up and go into the city and wait for further instructions gonna make him simmer on this for a little bit we see a lot of times in other places in Scripture when someone is called to Christ and is saved they immediately receive the Holy Spirit and are baptized but in this case Christ blinds him commands him to go into the city without any certainty on what lies ahead now notice from the text here he has not yet received the Holy Spirit at this point This comes later when Ananias lays hands on him. Now on the other side of this, imagine for a moment you're an apostle in the early church. You have seen Christ, his ministry, you have walked with him, you have discipled with him, you have witnessed his death, burial, and resurrection. And now Christ has tasked you with sharing the gospel, with building up his church, And this is no easy task, mind you. There is persecution around every corner. You're facing imprisonment, beatings, death. In fact, Stephen has just been martyred for the faith. Let me back up a few verses here to give you the full context in Acts chapter 7. Here we see Stephen is defending himself against false accusations in the Sanhedrin. So this is Stephen here preaching to the high priests in the Sanhedrin in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did. You do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covering their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he fell asleep. Saul agreed with putting him to death. Stephen died a martyr's death, defending Christ and the faith. He was speaking boldly and unashamedly, calling the hearers to repentance, preaching the truth regardless of the consequences. He probably even knew this would get him killed. But so deeply was his commitment to the faith, so passionate about the gospel was he, that he was willing to die for it. And notice his final words. Even as he is being murdered, he is praying to the Lord for their forgiveness. He doesn't pray, Lord, deliver me and strike down my enemies. No, he is praying for their own deliverance from their sin. Now I don't imagine Christians today would have quite the same attitude, or it's not as common at least. How often do we see this type of sacrificial love? Stephen lays down his life for the sake of bringing them the truth. Now think about that for a minute. He was in the Sanhedrin under trial. He could have just stood there and been quiet and been put in jail and then just waited it out and continued his ministry from there. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but in your own time, go back and read all of chapter 7 of Acts. He spends a lot of time pleading with them and preaching truth. So instead of taking the easy road, he preaches them the truth regardless of the cost And it wasn't for spite or because he wanted to get the last word in or to be argumentative with them. He's truly concerned for their salvation. We know this because literally as they're killing him, he's praying for their forgiveness. It's kind of humbling, isn't it? But back to the main point I was getting at here, imagine that you're an apostle and you're facing this kind of severe persecution and death. And at the heart of it is Saul. He's leading the charge. He is the enemy of the church. Perhaps the greatest enemy that they were facing at the time. Hunting down Christians and approving of their murder. And suddenly Saul is struck down on the road to Damascus. He is blinded, but he's not destroyed. Not only is he not killed, but he will soon be given the Holy Spirit and become a fellow apostle. I'd imagine this isn't exactly what we would be hoping for, am I right? I would imagine in our flesh, I know I would, we'd be hoping for that he would have been struck dead in his tracks rather than be given a second chance. See, the problem is that in our flesh, it's easy for us to hate our enemies. It doesn't come naturally for us to love our enemies. Sometimes it doesn't even come naturally to love those within the church or our own family. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. Christ has called us to love our enemies and to pray for those that persecute us. And this is a quality that should really set us apart from the rest of the world. And it doesn't come naturally. It runs contrary to our flesh. Where else do we see this in our world today? Loving our enemies sets us apart from the rest of the world. And we will see this later later on in verse 13 of our text as well. So let me get back to Saul here. So Saul gets up, and he's guided by the hand toward the city because he's unable to see. The text here says that he could not see, and he did not eat or drink for three days. Now try to imagine what's running through Saul's head here at this point. Clearly, Jesus, whom he's been persecuting, is in fact the Christ, He's been struck blind, and he shook him to the core. So much so that he's unable to eat or drink as well. Helpless as he is, he's being led by the hand into the city, and his fate is uncertain to him. Is he being led into the hands of the enemy to be put to death? Certainly that would be justified. Will the Lord make an example of him before the church? The sin in his life has caught up to him and he is forced to face the consequences of that sin. And all he can do at this point is just pray for God's mercy. He is utterly hopeless to help himself. Have any of you ever been in this type of situation before? I know that I have. There's been sin in your life, and the Lord has called you to repentance. But there's an uncertainty as to the consequences of that sin. Now, the Lord is faithful to forgive if we call to him for forgiveness and repent. But that does not mean that our sin doesn't have consequences. Let me give you an example. When I was in my early 20s, I was living in a life of sin. And that sin had finally caught up to me. It nearly cost me my marriage. My wife and I were separated and on the road to divorce. And at this point, I was not remorseful. I was not repentant. In fact, I was pleased to be able to choose this sin over my marriage. I was finally free to live how I wanted to. But praise be to God, he did not leave me in that state. At some point while we were separated, God brought me to my knees as well. One morning I found myself reading his word and kneeling in my kitchen, weeping, weeping over my wickedness, over my sin, over my disobedience, my broken marriage, and over Christ's overwhelming love and grace and mercy that he had shown me. I was reading from Isaiah 54. Let me just share with you for a moment the verses I was reading when God just shattered my pride and called me to repentance. So, this is Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 8. Do not be afraid, for you will not be put to shame. Don't be humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will no longer remember the disgrace of your widowhood. Indeed, your husband is your maker, and his name is the Lord of armies, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your Lord. I deserted you for a brief moment, but I will take you back with abundant compassion. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but I will have compassion on you with everlasting love, says the Lord, your Redeemer. At that moment, I knew that the Lord could forgive me. And I knew that my soul could be redeemed from my sin. But one thing I didn't know was if my marriage also would be redeemed. You see, God is faithful to forgive when we repent, but that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for our sins on earth. There are earthly consequences to our sin, and we aren't always guaranteed that we won't have to face them after we repent. Now, as many of you know, I am still happily married. God did redeem that. Praise God. But I can imagine this is what's going through Paul's head at this moment. What are the consequences of my sin going to be? Where am I being led, and what awaits me when I get there? So let me pick up in verse 10 of this morning's text. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has the authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must must suffer for my name. So on the one hand, here we have Saul, he's humbled, struck with blindness. And at this point, he has had a vision from the Lord that he will be healed. But on the other hand, we have Ananias, a faithful disciple, minding his own business when the Lord calls out to him in a vision. He tells him to get up and go to the house of Judas and ask for a man named Saul. Go and heal him. But look for a minute at Ananias' reaction here. Initially, we see Ananias as a faithful servant, ready to serve. At first, he answers, yes, here I am, Lord. But after he hears what the Lord wants him to do, what is actually required of him, he's a little bit reluctant. Lord, isn't this the man who has done so much harm to your saints? I could be arrested. I could be killed. Now, I'm sure this wasn't intentional, And probably just a knee-jerk reaction in the flesh but notice the change in Ananias here as soon as he hears what the Lord is asking of him he begins to second guess him well Lord do you know who this man is he's dangerous is this really a great idea have you thought this through I think we all tend to react this way sometimes when the Lord calls us to do something Sometimes the path that the Lord puts us on is not the easy path. And sometimes we try to look for that easier route. Surely God doesn't want me to put myself in harm's way. Surely God doesn't want me to put myself in an uncomfortable situation. Church following Christ isn't easy. It's not always safe. There are many missionaries out in the field right now who are at risk of harm or even death on a daily basis. Sometimes we as Christians are called to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations or uncomfortable conversations. When we are feeling led to do something, when we feel God calling us to do or say something for the kingdom, or if we recognize that there's sin in our lives that needs to be addressed, or an area where we need growth, we can't hesitate. We can't look for an excuse or an easy way out. If we are truly following Christ, we will face uncomfortable situations because of it. it just comes with the territory. We will die to our flesh for his sake. We see that is the Lord's commandment for Ananias here in this morning's text. So his excuse is brushed aside. The Lord says, go, for this man is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There is a cost to following Christ. Every church in America now seems to love to preach, God is love, come and lay your burdens down. Your life will be so wonderful once you choose Christ. But what do we see in the text here this morning? First of all, Paul doesn't choose God. Rather, God chooses Paul. And he grants him forgiveness of his sins and eternal life. But there's a cost. It's not a free ride. This is going to be a difficult journey for Paul. And we see Ananias... Having to get out of his comfort zone as well. Taking risks out of obedience to Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we're all going to be called to the same level of suffering and persecution that Paul was. But don't be taken off guard when it comes. Like it says in this morning's text, we are God's instruments. We are the tools that God has on this earth to carry out his will. I'm going to turn briefly to Romans chapter 10, verse 14 here. God uses us, church, to reach the lost. No one else is going to do it. It's our job. Romans 10, 14 says, How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Church, we are called to be the feet that bring the good news. We are called to expand God's kingdom. Christ has called us, the body of Christ, to preach the good news to all the ends of the earth. That's our job. Even if you aren't a quote-unquote missionary and you're not sent to another country, we can all agree there's plenty of work to do here in the United States. Amen? And yes, it probably will put us in some uncomfortable situations. We might lose some friends, some family. We might be mocked or ridiculed. We might have to sacrifice some of the cozy American comforts in our life that we have grown accustomed to. But this is the cost of following Christ. And we see this with Ananias this morning. Despite his reluctance, he listens and he goes where he is told to here in verse 17. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Can you imagine what Ananias almost missed out on here? What an amazing act of God to be a part of and witness. You have Saul here, the infamous persecutor of the church, healed, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes I just just sit down at night and contemplate all the amazing conversations we'll get to have in heaven with all these different people. Anyone else ever do that? Obviously, my greatest desire is to be in the presence of God and to worship him. But there's moments that I look forward to talking to other people that we read about in the Bible, and one of them that I'm most excited about is talking to Ananias here about this moment. I mean, it must have been amazing. The text here says that scales literally fell off his eyes, physical scales. And he got to be a witness firsthand to Paul's transformation. And then he got to be the boots on the ground discipling with Paul, helping him physically recover and spiritually grow. Now think of what he almost missed out on in his reluctance. Church, we never know what the Lord has in store for us if we don't act. If we are stagnant and hesitant to get out of our comfort zone and crucify our flesh, think of how many things we will miss out on. We see Paul doesn't delay or waste any time here either this morning after he regains his strength in verse 19. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time, Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. Immediately, right out of the gate, he's about his father's work. He doesn't delay. He doesn't hesitate. He knows the cost of one who follows Christ. He himself, just a short while ago, was witness to the murder of Stephen. He himself has dragged men and women out of their homes and threw them in jail. He knows what he is facing you see the physical risks here on earth are nothing in comparison to the reward of serving our God our God is mighty and holy and righteous and it is an honor and a blessing to be that instrument of his work we are blessed when we bring him glory not always here on earth but we are eternally blessed. Paul will go on to lead one of the biggest missionary campaigns that this planet has ever seen. He brings God glory through his obedience. And there was a physical cost for him here on earth. Do you remember earlier when we talked about how sin, our sin has consequences? Or in verse 16 when the Lord tells Ananias that he will show Paul how much he must suffer for his name. Now, from an earthly standpoint, Paul's life got drastically worse after he was saved. Just take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 24. Paul says here, Five times I received the forty lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing not to mention other things, there is daily the pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. This doesn't sound like the life that is promised to Christians in most churches today, does it? Sounds like a pretty tough life, full of hardship, pain, and suffering, but all for the glory of God. Jesus said that he would show Paul how much he must suffer for his name's sake. He wasn't joking. You won't hear this from the televangelists on TV. This isn't the fluffy, soft, passive Jesus that we see too often preached. Our sin has consequences. And our calling as believers requires something of us. And this is my main point this morning, church. Serving the Lord should not be easy. It should not be comfortable. There is a cost to serving Christ. In Luke chapter 14, Christ himself warns us of this and tells us, count the cost. It's not a free ride. I don't think it's out of line here to say that in light of this morning's text, if our lives are too easy and too comfortable we should ask ourselves are we really serving God or are we serving our own flesh let me turn to Luke chapter 14 briefly here this morning before we close I'll pick up in uh, Luke chapter 14 verse 25 now great crowds were traveling with him So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying this man started to build and was unable to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not, does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Now we don't have enough time here this morning to dig too deeply into this text. <clears throat> But we can see here that to be a follower of Christ, you must be radically different than everyone else in the world. To be a follower of Christ, it requires of us everything that we can give. If we truly love Him, our love for Him will consume us so much so that we don't have any other priorities in our life. And when we're loving Him perfectly, We see this love pouring out of us into the lives of those around us. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with what the terms of peace were 2,000 years ago in war. But basically, if you were at war and you surrender to the opposing king, the terms of peace were typically this your lives are spared, but everything that you have, all your possessions, your land, your family, your livestock, even yourself. Whatever the king wants, he can take it. So we see Jesus use this analogy when we surrender ourselves to God. When we repent and place our faith in Christ, we're not just being forgiven of our sin. We are surrendering everything that we have. Our families, our homes, our finances, our time. It all belongs to Christ after that. So if you're hearing this message this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, if you haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit, I beg you, repent and turn to him. Call out to him for mercy, for he is mighty and mighty to save. But first, before you do that, make sure you count the cost. Are you ready to give up everything that you have for the Lord. If you think that once you are saved that your life is going to get easier or you'll become wealthier or that all your problems will go away, don't be deceived. These are not the right reasons and none of this is promised to us. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that God won't bless us here on earth. This isn't out of the question. He does bless us in many ways. I have been truly blessed. This church has been truly blessed. And I'm eternally grateful for his provision and his faithfulness. But the gift of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and eternal life in the presence of God Almighty is far superior to anything that we can find on this earth. But it comes at a cost. There might be persecution ahead. There's going to be trials on the horizon. There is work to be done. Our lives are no longer our own. And if you're hearing this message this morning, you already have received the Holy Spirit, ask yourself and truly examine, have you lost your saltiness? Is your life just a little bit too easy? When is the last time you got out of your comfort zone for the sake of the kingdom? Are you challenging yourself in light of the scriptures? Have you crucified the flesh? Are you surrendering everything to the king? Our God is mighty and powerful. He is holy and perfect. He sent his only son to be crucified and to bear the burden of our sins so that we might receive eternal life and be forgiven. Glorify him this morning, church. Glorify him with your life, with your time, with your family, with your finances. Use this time that we have wisely. Serve him and worship him and you will be truly blessed. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord for the blessing, Lord, for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that despite the wicked, wretched, sinful sinful people that we are, Lord, that that you sent your son to die for us, Lord, that you care for us, that you want to redeem us, Lord. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would cling to the cross. Father, I pray that we would daily sacrifice of ourselves for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would just sanctify us this morning, Lord. I pray that you would sanctify us through your word as we continue through the week here, Lord. Mostly, Lord, I just pray that you would be glorified by your church. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.